Could it be that the Lord is telling you to deal with the sin in your life? Consider that with Pastor Ed Taylor next. So often, if you were to ask God tonight for wisdom in your current situation, so often the answer of wisdom from God is to deal radically with the sin that's in your life. And then you ask again, deal radically with the sin that's in your life. Yeah, but Lord, you don't understand. I just need this and I want this wisdom. Here's wisdom from heaven. Deal with that sin in your life. I've been telling you that for six months. I've been telling you that for six weeks. Deal with the sin in your life. So many wonder often why there's that check in their spirit or that trouble in their minds. Could it be that sin needs to be brought out into the open and confessed? The Lord is ready to receive you. The Lord is ready to forgive you. The Lord is ready to restore you. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You We've all experienced it. There was a little bit of mold on a piece of bread. We didn't remove it, and before long, the entire loaf is moldy and has to be thrown out. Well, today on Abounding Grace, we'll learn what can happen when we fail to deal radically with the sin in our lives. It can actually spread quickly and impact our entire life and relationship with God and even the peace we long to have. Here's Pastor Ed Taylor in 2 Kings 9. Verse 14 now. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram had been defending Ramoth Gilead, he and all Israel against Haziel, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted upon him, and when he fought with Haziel, king of Syria. And Jehu said, If you're so minded, let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it in Jezreel. So Jehu rode in a chariot, went to Jezreel, for Joram was laid up there, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. Now, verse 17, a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came, and he said, see, a company of men. And Joram said, get a horseman and send him to meet him, and let him say, is it peace? So the horseman went to meet him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what have I to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. And the watchman reported, saying, The messenger went to them, but he's not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, what have, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. And the watchman reported, saying, He went up to them and is not coming back. Driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. So Joram said, Make ready. And his chariot was made ready. And then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Jehu and met him on the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now it happened, when Joram saw Jehu, that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? So he answered, What peace, as long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many? And Joram turned around and fled and said to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah! Now Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Jehoram between his arms, and the arrow came out at his heart, and he sank down 
in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, pick him up and throw him into the tract of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely, verse 26, I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord. Now, therefore, take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. Well, Joram is the first one to go. And notice that he was wounded in the battle at Ramoth-Gilead and visited by Ahaziah, the king of Judah. They didn't know yet that Jehu is the new king of Israel. And so it's about 45 miles travel, not, not 45 minutes like you and I would travel. Well, there's some time to get there. And a couple of watchmen come and meet Jehu. And they ask this question, is it peace? Or in the Hebrew, is, is it, are you coming for shalom? And that's a good question to ask. Jehu answers, what, is, what do we have to do with peace? I haven't come in peace. And then he's met by two kings in the royal chariot. One's well, and then what is it? A well-directed arrow ends Joram's life. And, and I was just reminded in Ephesians chapter 6 that you and I are encouraged to put on the full armor of God so that we can withstand all of the schemes and the attacks of the enemy. That the enemy shoots his arrows at us as well. And they're well aimed. And they come with such great force. I'm amazed personally at the kind of force that a bow can send an arrow. And the kind of preciseness. This, this was a precise shot right through the heart. And he dies on the land that Ahab and Jezebel, remember, literally stole from Naboth. And there is retribution. And this was a prophecy, if you're jotting it down, that was fulfilled from 1 Kings chapter 21. Now, before we move forward in the rest of the chapter, we need to consider this issue of peace, of shalom, the Hebrew greeting. Jehu had the right concept, the right perspective, that as long as you've got all this corruption going on in your land, how can there be peace? As long as you have all of this idolatry and all of these, how can you possibly enjoy the peace of God? As long as there's so much satanic worship, as long as there's so much witchcraft and all this sexually charged false worship, worshiping false gods, there simply cannot be peace. There, there can't be peace in our land. There can't be peace in our world with the existence of the corruption of sin. It must be forsaken. Now you can say that you have peace and you can say that you experience peace, but truth be told, the peace that, that what you're calling peace is simply appeasement, pushing down the very fact and the reality. See, you don't need, you and I, those of us that are born again, you do not need a pastor to tell you of your own sin. You don't need a pastor to tell you. The Holy Spirit lives in you and continually reminds you of the sin in your life. Continually reveals it to you. It might start with a soft whisper and it might move forward and like be a loud voice. Of, what are you doing and why are you doing this? And don't go there and what are you doing here? And on and on the voice of God comes. But there does come a place where you and I can so stifle the Holy Spirit, we can so grieve the Holy Spirit, 
we, that, we, that our own conscience will be seared, like the Bible says, like with a hot iron, and we become numb to the regularity and habitual sin in our lives. And what you call peace actually is just a numbness of your life and your distance from God. How can there be peace with that in your life? is a question we have to ask ourselves. How can you truly enjoy the peace that passes all understanding with that in your life? How is it possible for you? And, and some of you might be saying, well, you know, wait a minute, I have these times of peace. No, it's not peace at all. It's not from the Lord. He's waiting. What do I have to do with peace? What's true in a land or in a country is true in our personal lives. There can be no real peace in our lives as long as there's sin that has gone unconfessed. It will simply trouble your heart, and it'll trouble your heart to the point where you won't let it trouble your heart anymore. Instead of ending it and coming back to the Lord, instead of cutting it off, Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, say thank you to your right hand. He doesn't say that. He says, cut it off. Deal radically with radical sin. You don't need to pray about it. You don't need to search the scriptures about it. You don't need to ask all your friends of what you should do. The Holy Spirit's telling you what to do. Cut it out. Get rid of it. Stop it. You will not experience true peace. What you think is peace right now is really just appeasement and numbness. And you're not really experiencing the presence of God at all. He's waiting for you to come back. James put it this way. In James chapter 1, verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to, lib to all liberally without reproach. It will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Think of that. A double-minded, you and I can be double-minded Simply in our prayer lives, just trying to ask God for something, but without faith. Like you and I, and, and I, I don't know about you, but I've been here many times. I understand what James says. I get it. Praying from God, but then I'm praying and like my faith is undermined and I'm trusting God. And, and in that moment, the Bible says that if I'm praying to God, asking for wisdom, but I'm, I'm not really exercising faith and trusting him, then I'm a double-minded man. And if I don't end that pretty soon, I'm going to be unstable, not in some of my ways, but in all my ways. Now, if you and I could be double-minded in a spiritual exercise of praying to God and really seeking God and the circumstances of our life are undermining our faith and so we're praying to God but we're kind of having a hard time believing he's going to answer. If you and I can be double-minded in seeking God through prayer, how much double-mindedness do you think there is when you are living in unconfessed, hidden sin in your life? I would say a lot. And some of you are just not willing to admit it. Oh, no, that's just a little compartment of my life. Well, man, it's just like one rotten apple, man. It ruins it all. It's like, yeah, you know, I just want one roach in my cereal. That's it. Just one roach. No big deal. I'll shake it out. Maybe the kids will get it tomorrow. Is that it? Is that it? You just take the cereal, one roach, it's 50% off, King Supers. Just one little mouse. Swimming in the milk? Is that all? You pull a gallon off the shelf and there it is. So oh, we'll just take it out. I'll eat the rest of the milk. No, it ruins it all, man. It's gone. Get a refund. Take it back. 
And so it should be in our own lives. I don't, I don't want to be unstable in all my ways, and I don't want to be double-minded, and one of the ways I can assure that in my life is just to come clean with the Lord with things in my life and not hold on to anything and unconfessed sin and just be clean with Him. So, and so often, if you were to ask God tonight for wisdom in your current situation, so often the answer of wisdom from God is to deal radically with the sin that's in your life. And then you ask again, deal radically with the sin that's in your life. Yeah, but Lord, you don't understand. I just need this and I want this wisdom. Here's wisdom from heaven. Deal with that sin in your life. I've been telling you that for six months. I've been telling you that for six weeks. Deal with the sin in your life. So many wonder often why there's that check in their spirit or that trouble in their minds. Could it be that sin needs to be brought out into the open and confessed? The Lord is ready to receive you. The Lord is ready to forgive you. The Lord is ready to restore you. He's ready to clean you up. You know, we take that Christian soap in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Restore to us the mind that we've given up and we've surrendered. As we were learning this weekend, you know, by sin, the title deed of the earth was given over to the devil. And so often in, well, in, in sin that's unconfessed, the title deed of your life has been handed over and you start living for the things of the devil. There are things in the Bible that, that God calls wicked, evil, that can enter our lives, that we can bring into our lives, that we would be a part of, that will wreck our lives. So we gotta wash up uh, all the time. We gotta regularly take showers with 1 John 1, 9. We need to be clean before the Lord. He's the one that cleans. We're the ones that confess. We're the ones that come to him humbly. So Joram's taken out, and there's not gonna be peace. Verse 27 now. But when Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the road to Beth Hagan. So Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also in the chariot. And they did so at the ascent to Gur, which is by Ibliam. And he fled to Megiddo, and he died there. You guys go to Israel with us. We go up to Mount Carmel. We have this overlook, and you're able to see the whole valley of Megiddo. You can go to Megiddo. We'll go to Megiddo as well, and you see a whole different place. A whole different vantage point of this huge valley. And it says in verse 28, His servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem, buried him in the tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah became king over Judah. And Ahaziah takes off, Jehu takes him out too. Another precise arrow, verse 30. When Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she put pain on her eyes and adorned her head, and looked through a window. Then as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? And he looked up at the window and said, Who's on my side? Who? And two or three eunuchs looked out at him. And then he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank. And then he said, go now, see to this accursed woman and bury her. She was a king's daughter. And they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. I wonder why. Why do you guys think? 
That was pretty quick. Verse 36, they came back and told him and said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by the servant Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, on the plot of ground, Jezreel dogs will eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as of refuse on the surface of the field in the plot of Jezreel, so that they shall not say, here lies Jezebel. Now, this is a disgusting sight that I have seen a version of this, not with a human, but one time as we were serving in Cairo, Egypt, serving in the slums there in the, the places where the believers were we, were, we were delivering food, I saw, it was the most disgusting thing. I, I don't, it just jumped into my mind. It's not in my notes. This is from the Lord. No, it's from me. So I saw a dog eating another dead dog. And it's just making my stomach turn thinking about it right now. Think about how it was with Jezebel and how fast it happened where God, his word, came true. Jezebel, history tells us that she was a very attractive woman. And here she is putting on, she's painting her eyes and adorning her head and looking out a window. This suggests perhaps that she wants to seduce this man and take advantage of of the weakness of a man and put on, you know, put on, uh, paint the house and take care of everything and get it all ready to take advantage. It reminded me of something. It may have reminded you as you read through. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7. As Solomon is writing, he warns men to be careful of this particular Proverbs 7 woman. Proverbs 7 is where I want you to turn. Here we have Jezebel. History tells us a very attractive woman, and she sees, she sees Jehu, and she starts painting it up. And in verse 1, it says, my son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live. My law is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister, and call to understanding your nearest kin, that they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. For I, at, the, at the window of my house, I looked up, and I saw the simple, perceived among the youths, a young man devoid of understanding, passing by her corner, took the path to her house at night, in the black, dark night. And there, verse 10, a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart, loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay home. Sometimes she was outside, verse 12, sometimes in the open square, lurking at every corner. And so she caught him and kissed him. And with an impudent face, she said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I've paid my vows. Here's a, a, a harlot who is very spiritual. So I came out, verse 15, to meet you, to seek your face, and I found you. Spread my bed with tapestry, color, uh, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I perfumed my bed. Come, let us take, verse 18, our fill of love until morning. Let's decide, delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the appointed day. And with her enticing speech, she caught him. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately, he went after her. How? As an ox goes to the slaughter, as a fool 
to the correction of the stalks, till an arrow struck his liver and a bird hastens to the snare. He did not know it would take his life. Therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she's cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. Be careful of the Jezebel. I believe that the application is clear for men to, the the teaching is clear, men avoid these women, but the application is clear, women avoid these men. And women don't become a Proverbs 7 woman, and men don't become a Proverbs 7 man. Sex is to be enjoyed within the context of marriage, and that's it. And those that are married, those that are single, there's always someone looking to take advantage of you. And like an ox to the slaughter, just walking through. And here's Jezebel getting all prettied up for Jehu. And she changes tactics a little bit in verse 31 because you have to do a little bit of searching. But she mentions as Jehu enters the gate, she said, is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? She reminds Jehu of Zimri. He was a king, remember, back in 1 Kings 16. He came to power because he assassinated, he was, he assassinated the king at the time named Elah. And his violent rule only lasted seven days until the people rebelled against him. And they bur- he burned down his own house and he died in the fire. And Jezebel says, remember Zimri? Well, she has no one really on her side. And I was thinking, after the death of her husband... I think it's in Chronicles where you get the, the time frame. Uh, because when we go through Chronicles, a lot of it will be repetition because Chronicles is repeating from Kings. But I think it's, after, uh, it's in Chronicles where you get the time frame that after Ahab died, Jezebel lived another 14 years, pampered and comfortable. And maybe she thought she got away with her wickedness. Maybe she thought, hey, those around her thought she got away with it too. And yet, behind the scenes, People can see through wickedness. Just give it some time. People can see through it. At least the people that have the eyes of God, they can see through it. And you had, how, how do you know? Well, when Jehu calls up, who's on my side? There were a few eunuchs waiting for this moment. I don't think they could have predicted this moment. Hey, I just, you know, I don't think they were sitting around. I hope one day a guy comes and he just yells out to the window. Will you throw Jezebel out? I don't think they knew that. But I do think there was a part of their lives just wondering, when is she going to get hers? When is it going to end? And if these eunuchs had any connection to God at all, I wonder if they questioned, when is it going to be justice? How do people like this get away with this? Maybe that's a question that's been running through your mind as well. The truth is, no one gets away with sin, and justice will be served, if not in this life, certainly in the one to come. You've been listening to Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace and part of a study in Second Kings. Hear it again online at calvaryaurora.org when you search for Second Kings 9. Well, Pastor Ed, we have just entered into March, and we have a new resource to tell our listeners about. What do you have there, my friend? 
Uh, Larry, there's a new resource this month, but it's actually a well-tried-and-true resource. It's Why Grace Changes Everything by Pastor Chuck Smith. One of the foundational works in beginning to understand God's richness of grace toward us. It's all of His riches at Christ's expense, the unmerited, uh, undeserved favor of God. Why grace changes everything. It was very pivotal in my foundational understanding of grace. It is a must for every spiritual library. And that's what we do with these picks. You know, the, the picks of the month for the radio and also for our church family are, are designed to help you develop a spiritual library, to make sure that you have books that you can trust, that have blessed us, that we know will bless you. So pick up Why Grace Changes Everything, whether you do it to support the ministry through us or you just go through Amazon and Kindle, makes no difference to me. I just want a good resource in your hands and I want to see you grow in your understanding of God's love and grace. That's Why Grace Changes Everything by Chuck Smith. And we'll gladly send you a copy when you support Abounding Grace today with a gift of $25 or more. Call us right now at 877-30-GRACE or turn to calvaryaurora.org on the web. Again, that's 877-30-GRACE. Join us for our next study in 2 Kings. That's on the next Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado. 